We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Your spring is about to get a lot more power with the Home Depot. Get gas-like power from mowing, trimming, and blowing with the Ryobi 18-volt 1 Plus system starting at just $89. Mowing power that can take on a third of an acre with one charge. Trimming power with up to two hours of runtime. And blowing power with 110 miles per hour of clearing force. All of one interchangeable battery. Get cordless gas-like power for the entire lawn with the Ryobi 18-volt 1 Plus system. Only at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Well, we just Sorry finished. We just finished the interview. Wish we could have had you along with us. Yeah, <laughs> it was really. It was, it was a quick. Uh, <laughs> you covered everything, right? And then World War II ended. <laughs> well, it's great to be with you guys again. Uh, great to be talking to you, Brad. Uh, we've done a couple of interviews, and you had your your stuff's absolutely great. I'm going to read uh, a little. Thanks to Josh. And yes, it is. Thanks to Josh. And I'm going to make that clear here in the opening in the opening that I've got. So uh, I'll give the opening, then have you both introduce yourselves. Here we go. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we're honored to have with us today the number one New York Times bestselling author, Brad Meltzer, and his Josh Mensch with us today to give us a lot of really good insights into a very little-known Nazi plot to assassinate the big three, World War II Allied power leaders, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin in Tehran, Iran in 1943. But first, a little on Brad. He's been with us twice before. He's one of my favorite authors, hosts, producers, and creative minds out there, along with his counterpart, Josh Mensch. The two form a best-selling team that produces absolutely riveting nonfiction stories, as well as children's books, television shows, video documentaries. By the way, children's books, as we saw in I Am Walt Disney and I Am Marie Curie and others. Brad and Josh have, to their credit, some successful TV shows, including Lost History and Decoded, as well as comic books such as the award-winning Justice League of America. That's just to name a few. These guys have been busy. Somehow they've kept their humility through all this. He and Josh have given us a ton of history and heroes to look up to. And I'm honored to have both of them here to share the Nazi conspiracy with us. Congratulations on finding yet another largely untold story. Just how do you two do it? 
Um, you know, the funny part is, and first of all, I just am happy that we're talking to someone who we've spoken to before. So uh, thanks for having us back. Usually once we go somewhere, we never get invitations back. Um, we, we mess up. We mess up the joint. Um, so it's great to be back here, obviously. Um, but to answer your question, you know, I, I found this story a number of years ago, and, and it always happens the same way as I find something um, or Josh will find something and we'll send it to the other and be like, what do you think? And I think, and, and Josh, I'll let you speak to this as well. For us, I, I think if it, if, it, if it passes one of us, it's an okay story. If it passes both of us, then we're like, there's something here. And and I think between the two of us, you know, we, we, we do come at these things in a strange way, so similarly, but also so differently. And, and I think if it can pass both of us, that's when we go, we really have something here. And I think in this one, the, the thing that was most fascinating is, listen, it's a Nazi plot, as you said, to kill Winston Churchill, Stalin, and FDR at the height of World War II. How do you not know this story? How did this story get past us all these years? We know so much about World War II. It's probably arguably one of the most studied parts of history, certainly of modern American history. And all of us were going, how did we never hear of this before? And... For us, that's obviously always a great point to start off on. But with this one, we was always saying, what even really happened? You know, did it even happen? What what's the what's the news here? And that's what when you read the Nazi conspiracy, I promise you will never look at World War II the same way again. I agree with you. This has been a page turner, you guys. Do you remember the online article that first alerted you to this story? I don't. I you know what? I, I, I'm not joking. I think I saw it on all places on like Yahoo or something. Uh, it was this, and it wasn't. It, it, remember, Josh? I remember sending it to you, and it wasn't even. It was years ago, and it didn't really have much information. It, there wasn't much about it. It was short. Yeah, I think of all the stories we've done, this one might have been the most confusing initially to try to figure out what it was. Oh, there's lots of different things written about it, but they all conflict with each other. And just sorting out uh, the rumors from the facts was a huge part of this. It's kind of a rabbit hole you have to go through for a while before you can even understand the lay of the land. And there's a lot of misinformation out there about it. This was a really tough job, at least from, from my point of view, uh, for both of you. In order to tell the story, you had to give a proper history of what was going on so people could see it not only from the micro view of what's going on, but also from the macro view in terms of looking down. It made the story probably difficult to do, involved a lot of research, but the way, the style that, of writing that you guys have is really easy to understand. There's a lot to it and it's deep and it's well footnoted, but it's not so technical that it drives you off the page. You want to find out from page to page what's going on. And there's a lot to it. And it skips, it has to skip from the different viewpoints of the different people involved. I mean, listeners, just try and imagine the security that you've got to have in Tehran when you've got three world leaders trying to meet there. What kind of security do you need, especially after you find out that there's a plot to kill all three of them? I mean, it's an incredible story and it's true, which makes it riveting. Why isn't it a movie out there on Netflix? Of course, I'm going to ask you that before our interview's over. I'm going to have you guys outline the beginning and the end so we can kind of get an idea what that movie's going to look like. And I'm going to leave that one up to you, Josh. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I mean, and listen, we, we picked, I, I'll tell you, you know, as you said, there's so much to kind of unpack, but you've got to pick right at the, you go right, always right to the heart of it. So, you know, we open up on, November 28, 1943, the president, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, is literally ducked down in the back of a car. And 
everyone sees the motorcade coming through Tehran and everyone's waving at the so-called president. There's like a hand waving back, but that's not FDR at all. That's a decoy. The motorcade, the person in there is, is absolutely not FDR. FDR, as I said, is in the back of a different car, ducked down, hiding, um, racing through the back parts of the streets because they're trying to get him to what's the equivalent of the Russian embassy uh, to make sure he's safe. I just ruined chapter one of the Nazi conspiracy for you. But that's chapter one is we put you right on that moving train and say, guess what? This is not going to be the typical World War II story you're ever going to see again. The Nazi conspiracy is going to take you on a completely different journey that you've never seen before. Yeah, listeners, it's quite a scene. It's quite a scene that the way they put it in this book, you've got a motorcade coming through Tehran that's supposed to be carrying President Roosevelt. And yet he's in the back of a small sedan accompanied by a jeep racing through the back streets of Tehran. I mean, it's just an incredible, incredible, true beginning to this whole story, which just catches you up in it and just keeps you going. It's good. I don't think we're giving away anything by giving away the beginning. It just shows you how much action that this story is going to involve and how, much, how deep it's going to get. It's great. Let's start off with a little bit of backdrop for our listeners in terms of why this meeting was so important and what the motives were. What did they want to accomplish by the time it ended? other than staying alive. Yeah, I mean, and I'll, I'll jump in, and then Josh, please jump in as well. I mean, I think what was, and this is kind of for me what was so fascinating about the book, is, you know, we see World War II as such, you know, there's good guys and there's bad guys, and the Allies stayed together, and there we were. And, and I think what caught me off guard is just how fragile that alliance was. And here's, you know, Russia, who, of course, we know is, you know, our great enemy, you know, for the Cold War. And, and even now is just, you know, incredible history being rewritten. But in, in World War II, they're our ally. And so it's Russia, it's United States, it's, you know, it's Great Britain. We're there together. And you think, oh, we're going to fight against Hitler himself. And um, what was shocking to me is how how fragile that that alliance was. You have, you know, FDR is trying to make sure that he can get Stalin alone so they can have, you know, something together. The cross-channel attack they're trying to plan for, Stalin wants it so badly. You have Churchill who's hemming and hawing and saying, maybe we don't want to do this, maybe we shouldn't do this. You have a point where, and again, I don't want to ever ruin anything in the book, but you'll see that uh, where you think Winston Churchill and FDR, they're going to stand together strong as could be. And you'll see that there's a point where FDR says, I'm going without him because I got to make sure this happens. And that's how we, in a, in, you know, without revealing every part of the book, but that's how we wind up in Tehran. Like, you have Churchill saying, let's meet here. You have Stalin saying, let's meet here. Stalin says, I can't leave my country. We're, you know, grossly, you know, being slaughtered every single day. I can't go flying to the United States, much less a midpoint, which is where they, they initially pick, is let's find a midpoint from all three of us. And you're watching these machinations take place. You're watching FDR saying, nominate place after place after place and Stalin going, no, no, no. There's a reason he's called the man of steel. Uh, and you, you watch in this book, um, when you finally, when they finally pick Tehran, you go, I, I, oh my gosh, I, of all the places you're going to pick, you never think it's going to be there. We couldn't bring Stalin to Casablanca, right? So that, <laughs> yeah. So it was, we were desperate by that time to bring all three together. Yeah, Stalin was very difficult in terms of planning this summit. He refused and refused and refused and said no and said no. And then he kept 
saying he wouldn't go to any location that the other leaders proposed. They proposed about 20 different locations. Tehran was just about uh, uh, the most inconvenient possible location in the world for FDR to get to. Uh, but Stalin would not go anywhere else. Uh, and it was really because Roosevelt was so passionate and believed it was so important for the three of them to get together that he finally made it work, even even though it meant sort of um, the fact that kind of Stalin uh, got one over on them by forcing them to come to the place where he wanted to go. And there was a bit of a power struggle between the three leaders. Uh, but at the end of the day, Roosevelt said, it's fine. My ego can take it. Uh, this This meeting is so important because this is the meeting that is gonna get us to win the war with the three of us all agreeing that we're gonna cross the English Channel and attack Western Europe. Um, that was the absolute essential goal. And so Roosevelt just put everything else aside and said, we're doing this. I don't care, we'll, we'll go to Tehran, let's do it. What, what in this story will be new for armchair historians? I think, you know, obviously the deep dives we take are the fun dives to me. Um, you'll see I think one of my favorite stories in there is about a man named Otto Skorzeny. He's going to be the guy that you look at and you go, who's this guy? What's he doing? What's happening? Um, and and just to give you a taste of him, there's a moment where Hitler calls all of his top military officers into the Wolf Slayer, which is, of course, his headquarters. And he lines them all up. They're all standing there in a line, all of his, these top military fighters. And he's asking this question, uh, what do you think of Italy? And most of the officers mumble kind of generic answers. And Otto Skorzeny blurts out, I'm Austrian, my Fuhrer. That's what he says to him. And the room goes silent. It's Skorzeny gambling in that moment because he knows Hitler is from Austria too. And basically, if you're from Austria, in World War I, uh, there was a piece of Austria that was taken by Italy that even if you know Germany is now aligned with Italy in World War II, true Austrians will never ever forgive Italy for taking. And in that moment, Hitler finds his man. He's like, this is my guy. Of all the other people, Adolf Hitler looks and says, you're my guy, and chooses him for, this is the part I, I shouldn't ruin, what has to be the wildest mission you've ever seen. It's the rescue of Benito Mussolini at the height of World War II. Mussolini's, you know, uh, taken out of power and hidden somewhere, hidden in lots of places. And Skorzeny is the man who Adolf Hitler says, find them for me. And when you see this rescue operation, it is, it's truly Nazis falling from the sky in hang gliders. And I mean, it's the most amazing moment. I know Josh and I kept going like, this is the craziest thing we've won of, the, of all the things we've written about, whether it's the Lincoln conspiracy, whether it's the plot to kill George Washington at the height of the Revolution War. Personally, this moment is one of the most amazing moments, this Nazi rescue that that I'll wager you have not seen before. Would that also qualify as the biggest surprise that came through the research? Well, I'll speak very quickly for myself and I'll let Josh answer. Again, there are surprises that, oh, I didn't know that. And there are surprises that kind of shake you to your core because you knew something about it and it makes you look in a different way. This was definitely the biggest surprise of like, I've never heard of such a thing. Again, for me, what was the biggest surprise is just kind of um, how tenuous this relationship was. You know, you think of the allied powers as being, you know, this, uh, this alliance is unbreakable. And it was, it was staggering to me to see just how tenuous it was. But Josh, I'll let you, uh, you may have a different take on it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with 
that, you know, the Scorzani uh, rescue of Mussolini is just the most sort of jaw-dropping uh, episode in the story. And it's just a reminder that, you know, as much as we've all heard about World War II and learned about World War II and learned about it in school and read books about it, there are, it was such an epic global uh, multi-year adventure and cataclysm that there's just pieces of it that are forgotten and that are just amazing when you really get into it. Um, as far as the bigger uh, takeaway for me, I think was just that I think as Americans uh, learning about the war, you learn from a per certain perspective and there's certain um, parts of the war that you learn more about and focus on. And that's, you know, for good reason. You, you learn, it's learning about your own country. But what really, uh, really surprised me and maybe wouldn't surprise someone who studied the war their whole lives, but um, just the extent to which it was a war between Nazi Germany and Russia and that the real heart of the war uh, for most of it was taking place on Russian soil. And, and it was really Stalin versus Hitler for so much of it. And in terms of just the number of battles and the casualties and the loss of life, that's where the war, war really took place. And the British and the Americans, you know, we kind of swooped in to help, uh, but the heart of the war was, was, was in the Soviet Union. And, um, and I just didn't really appreciate that until truly studying and, you know, the middle of the war for this for this book and it just makes you look at the whole thing a little bit differently it's yeah. fascinating and and just to add one thing to that that as you were talking josh another thing that just reminded me caught me off guard personally um is when when we think of world war ii i always thought you know and as, and, and as someone who's jewish of course right there's the nazis there's the ultimate bad guys that finally some bad guys we can agree on and the Nazis were always over there, you know, they were there and we were here and that, you know, and that's why Pearl Harbor was so devastating. You know, I think what also caught me off guard and, and, and again, credit to Josh for finding it. Um, but you'll see these moments in the United States. One of my favorite moments in the book is you'll see there's a rally that the Nazis have the German Bund here in the United States, in New York City at Madison Square Garden. And they put giant swastikas up with a giant mural of George Washington. They said George Washington would have loved the Nazis. And, you, and, and it was so ridiculously absurd on its face that when I read it, and, and Josh and I were going back and forth, I remember saying we need a picture of it. So when you read the Nazi conspiracy, we put the picture in the book from that giant and um, you know it's madison square garden it's where the knicks play and there's a giant picture of george washington these swastikas there because you just wouldn't believe it and and i think for me we you know we, we tend to try and blame as we look back world war ii on you know oh it's hitler and it's these certain quote-unquote evil people and we forget just how many people at that time saw horrors and saw you know they, they felt you know bad about their place in society they felt bad about what you know what they were losing in terms of their own power and all those people when all this stuff was going on none of them said no and and that's the that's one of those moments that also for me you know catches me off guard i understand that happens in nazi germany i don't expect it to happen here in new york city and again look at the world we are now this it should be no surprise to us we're once again still fighting nazis um but for me that was that was a, a bit of heartbreak It's always seemed to me that uh, Hitler and the Nazis have deservedly been the bad guys for all these years. 
and that we do understand the danger of totalitarianism, the danger of Nazism. Stalin, it seems to me, never got quite the hatred that um, Hitler did, and yet I think he deserves as much or more, at least as much, uh, for what he did to Poland and Czechoslovakia and, and the other countries following World War II. What opinion of Stalin did Churchill and Roosevelt have when they went into that conference? That's a great question. Uh, and it was something they talked about a lot. And there was a lot of debate about, you know, within American circles, within foreign policy circles. And Roosevelt's advisors all had different opinions. Uh, but it was this question of, can we trust this guy? Can we trust this person, Joseph Stalin and his regime? And no one really knew the answer. I mean, there were a lot of opinions and there was, you know, a lot you could draw on to, to, to come to a conclusion. But uh, Roosevelt was an optimist and he, you know, maybe after the fact, people have criticized him for it, but he believed that if he could get in the room with Joseph Stalin, they could see eye to eye. And that at least when it came to this incredibly important goal of defeating Nazi Germany, that they could work together. And there were people around him who said, you know, don't work with this guy, or you can't trust this guy, or you shouldn't even meet with this guy. And Churchill um, was much more skeptical about Stalin than Roosevelt was, uh, and just in general sort of skeptical of the Soviet Union. Um, but they all knew that they had to, to work together to win the war. And it was Roosevelt's optimism that drove everything. Uh, at least that was my takeaway. He really just believed if they kept trying, if they kept working together, uh, if they kept trying to understand Stalin and give him just enough of the benefit of the doubt that they could, at least for this time and place, work together to accomplish this goal, that that's, he just kept his eye on the ball, basically. He kept his eye on the prize of winning the war. And he would do anything it took to win uh, and to defeat Hitler. And that meant working with Stalin. And so he, he had to encourage the people around him and encourage Hitler to just to have a little faith that the three of them could work together Whatever else you might say about Stalin, they had to be partners in this war. So it, it was fa it's a fascinating, the sort of psychology of it between the leaders is really interesting. Was it at Tehran where the three leaders decided how things would be divided at the end of the war? Did that come later? That came later. Uh, this yeah, was yeah, still like... How are we going to win this thing? Uh, it was really planning that, uh, you know, what would later be known as, as D-Day, the Normandy invasion. Getting all three of them to agree on that plan was, there were other goals too, but that was the main goal of the conference, uh, to get Churchill and Roosevelt to say, we're going to do this. We are going to hit, hit Hitler from the West while you're fighting him in the East, which is what uh, Stalin really wanted. And I think one thing uh, our armchair historians are going to enjoy is the research that you did on the interplay, give and take, between the three uh, when it came to Operation Overlord, the invasion of, of coastal France, in the way that Churchill uh, wanted to delay it. And I'm going to ask you in a minute why. And that Stalin wanted it just as fast as possible, probably to take some of the heat off him uh, in, in Russia. And Roosevelt was also saying, you know, Let's get this done somewhere in between. That tension that was created, especially between Churchill and Stalin, and that Roosevelt had to constantly try and work at, I think he was, he was trying to stay friendly with Stalin, whereas Churchill obviously hated Stalin and didn't want Stalin 
calling the shots on any of this stuff. It was an interesting interplay, and it was extremely well-researched, as almost as if you were a fly on the wall there. You guys did a good job with that. Yeah, I'll let Josh talk about the, the Stalin part, because I'll talk about the part that I just... For, for so many years, I've been obsessed with the, uh, the Churchill-FDR uh, relationship. Uh, I remember when I lived in Washington, D.C., going you know, to the church where they used to go for services, and they, you know, they has a plaque there now, and they, they mark it out front. Um, it, it's known as one of the great friendships of history, right? It is what makes the countries even today feel like we belong together, and it's not just because of the lack of language barrier or you know, a, a difference of accents. Um, it, it is, it's a fascinating relationship. I think one of my favorite moments in the book is, um, you know, back then there, obviously there's no email, there's no, you know, send me, send me the map and we have it within two seconds when they want to make plans. Churchill flies to the United States. They put him in the white house. They give him a room. Here he is. He's in the East wing. They give him a bathtub. He likes to take his, I think I, you know, um, his, his, you his, share that story? I, I should share that story. <laughs> his two baths a day. But one of my favorite moments in the book is, uh, one of the president's aides walks in on Churchill, who is literally buck naked coming out of his bath. And Churchill in that moment turns around and says, the leader of the, of the United Kingdom has nothing to hide from the president of the United States. And I thought that's the best comeback when you're caught naked that I've ever heard in my life. Like if anyone catches good. me naked in the shower, that's what I'm going to say is uh, I have nothing to hide from the president of the United States. <laughs> well, have you been invited to the White House yet? I have been invited to the White House. I have. I've been, I've been there multiple times. I did get to go in the president's private dining room. And so when we were doing these stories, and, and in fact, I, I was just there for the Easter egg roll. They invited me to read there. And, I, and they, they put the authors up in the East Wing while we were writing the book. While we were working on the book, I was in the East Wing, which is where Churchill was. And I remember thinking, oh, and you're like, where's the bathtub? I'm like, where the is the bathtub? <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, and I've been yeah. to the president's private dining room. And the thing that's amazing about the White House when you go there is it, it's not that big. It's just not because the, the, what we see and when you see the White House, um, obviously you see the press room, you see those things that are downstairs. But the president's private um, living quarters are only the top two floors. It's it's a tiny, really small space. And so when you think of this friendship, you and you invite someone over for you know a week or two at a time, you're on top of each other. You really are. You know you it, it's you know it's it's like just being in a small hotel with them. And I mean a small one, not not you know it's not like you're on 18 floors of things. You have these you know this this small acreage and the small footprint, but. That that's the one side, Josh. I'll let you talk about the Stalin uh, Churchill side because obviously that's a huge part of the book as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing I would say is is I would encourage anyone to to look at the letters written between these three leaders. They're just unbelievable and they're totally available and, and readable to anyone. Um, they're all archived, and it's just so interesting to read. You know, Stalin to Churchill, Churchill to Roosevelt, Roosevelt to Stalin. And Stalin was really, really angry at both of them because they kept delaying, uh, you know, the Operation Overlord, uh, the cross-channel attack, D-Day, whatever you want to call it. Uh, he really wanted them to attack uh, Hitler from the West uh, across the English Channel uh, so that he wasn't taking all the heat in, in the Soviet Union because he had just been getting pummeled and pummeled and pummeled. And his people had suffered so much. His cities had been devastated. And he was like, come on, guys, you got to help me here. 
and uh, and they kept delaying. And every time they promised, like, we're going to do it, we're going to do it, uh, you know, next June. And then June would come along and they'd say, sorry, uh, we realize we don't have, you know, uh, the right operation together. We're not prepared for this. We can't do it. And Stalin just got more and more frustrated. And the letters are very angry and snippy. Uh, and, he, you know, it, it turns into personal insults between them. Uh, Rosa, I mean, uh, Churchill and Stalin end up having this back and forth that just escalates and escalates and escalates with the name calling. Uh, uh, Stalin basically uh, calls Churchill a coward and says that he's afraid to attack. Um, and it gets really ugly. And, and Roosevelt has to always be the peacemaker between them. And it's all in these letters. Um, uh, and it's it's just fascinating to, to you get the three personalities and you get the egos and you get these incredibly important issues that are going on as well. And um, it's like you're just reading history in these letters. It's, it's amazing. I also think one of the things that, you know, we forget that the Russians were actually on the sides of the Nazis at the start of the war. That's where they start the war. It's only when, you know, the Germans invade Russia that they suddenly have a problem with the Nazi agenda. And so that adds, you know, it's a, it's a, a crucial point to why it's, they, they don't trust this guy. It's not just, oh, we, you know, we hate those Russians, but you're like, wait, wait, whose side do you want? It's only when it's good for you that you're with us. And so you're watching Churchill, you know, who believes that we're going to, you know, fight this Mediterranean front, that the best way to go through Europe is to do this way. And Stalin's going, no, no, save my millions of people that are dying. Um, you need to help me. And, and I know we know the answer now. We know what happens at D-Day. We know that it works. But when you look at, at the time period and you're watching this calculation go on and Churchill's convinced that his kind of soft underbelly approach is the best way through Europe and Stalin's convinced, no, you have to come through this way. Um, it's not, it, you, really, you realize just how hard it was for them to f figure out what's the best way. And again, we know the answer now and I'm still reading it going, I can't believe this. You are both so deep into this book that you can probably answer this question better than most people alive right at this point. What would have happened had any one of those three or all three been assassinated if the Nazis attempted had succeeded? I mean, it's it's you know, we, we might know it better than 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 many, but it's still one of those what ifs that you almost can't imagine. I mean, just the psychologically cataclysmic, the impact of an assassination at this event that's supposed to be about allied unity. If if somehow Nazi intelligence had been able to penetrate and had even injured, uh, let alone killed one or, or two or all three of them, it would have been such a devastating blow uh, from a sort of propaganda uh, perspective on the image of the war all, all over the world. And it truly was a world war. So everyone's involved in the world and, and it just would have been such a blow to the morale and to the perception of strength of the allies. And it would have been a huge uh, you know, boom to Nazi Germany for them to, even though they, at that point in the war, they weren't doing as well militarily, it's, it could have really turned the tables. Um, and it, it just, it would have been a, a different history. Uh, truly, a sh it would have been a shocking, terrifying event that would change the course of history in ways we almost can't imagine. Which tells us just how high the stakes were and why the action is so intense in this book. No, and I, I agree with that. I mean, that's what I was, I was about to say is um, propaganda back then, you know, we use that where we throw it around, but it has such power. 
And and today we're used to the world where you know our news cycle lasts a day and then we move on to the next story. But you'll see we you know we feature in the book Pearl Harbor happening, and it doesn't when you when you look at that we all know the story right. You know, Pearl Harbor's happened. We're caught off guard. And oh my gosh! And now we have to enter the war. And who are we going to you know fight? And who's you know who are we declaring war against? Obviously the Japanese do this. But when you look at the actual timeline, and you're taking the, it's not a 24-hour news cycle. It devastates the entire country emotionally for weeks. And when you look at what Pearl Harbor does, right, where obviously, you know, it, it's a, a vital part of, of the, you know, it's part of our nation. It's the first time we're attacked on our own soil. But if you imagine that happening to at that point is the hero of the country, the man holding things together, forget even about Churchill, forget about Stalin for a moment. Um, and you think of just how much emotion is going into this, what, what you're trying, you know, we're spending so much time, we talk about this in the book as well, um, that the war effort is so psychological in the United States that we have to feel like we're doing well. And when something goes well, even the photograph of the big three together goes out and is devastating to the Nazi cause because they see like, look at this, they're all together plotting against you and you don't, we don't think today of like the power of a photograph, but back then that was a potent weapon. It was as much a weapon as a bomb or a gun. And I don't think we can understate that. So, and I say all that simply to say, obviously, Josh is, you know, of course, correct. We can't possibly know, <coughs> we'll know what, the, what the solution is, but um, there's no question. It's emotionally devastating to us at that time where 1943, you're at the height of the war where everything's about to, you know, potentially go sideways. We definitely have a hero in this story, listeners, and he's called Mike Riley. I have never, ever heard of Mike Riley. <laughs> but if you want to get a guy to play, if you want to get Tommy Lee Jones to play a part in this movie, he might be a little old for it now, but he'd be the perfect one for this guy. Would you please explain what Mike Riley's role was in all this? By the way, at first we have to talk about your casting is pretty spectacular. I was going to say, I would, I would say, I would say, Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive is Mike Riley. Exactly, that's what got, I was I think thinking. You nailed that one. Um, uh, so Mike Riley is uh, is FDR's Secret Service agent. His, and what's so great is it's it's truly, and it, you'll feel it in the book. It it is seems it, it is his guy. Um, what I love about Mike Riley is that you know today, and I know how the Secret Service works, I've worked with them for 20 years on different books, and there's a giant staff, and you know, every time the president goes anywhere, there's a, there's a section that goes there, there's an advanced team that goes there. They will take, um, you know, go in the hotel, check the hotel, they'll put bulletproof glass that they roll into the hotel room to block the windows, and then there's another team that will come in and do bomb sniffing, there's another team that will check out the electrical, there's another team that will do transportation, and then you have World War II, and it just feels like Mike Riley's going to do it all alone. Like Mike Riley, like FDR says to him, go check out Tehran. And Mike Riley's like, I'm getting on the plane. And then he like goes there and he goes to Iran. And then he comes back and tells Churchill what he saw. saw and you're like, it's just one guy. You, I mean, obviously, he certainly has a team and there's other people there. Nothing but, like today's um, uh, operation. It's it was just amazing not, what was on his opposite back. Of that. And, his, and the staggering thing is how long every one of these trips took. When they say, oh, come meet with me, it's not you go there and then you fly back the next day. You're gone for two weeks because you're going to go there by boat for half of it. There's a point where you'll see Churchill on a, you know, one of our, um, you know, amazing warships out in the middle of the ocean. And they're showing, you know, and 
he's traveling by boat. It's going to take weeks. We're having a constitutional potential crisis because if the president is gone and legislation's passed, he can't approve it in time. If he's out of the country, he can't make it back in time to approve the legislation. So you have uh, this 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 difference of of what travel technology allows. And Mike Riley just saying, "I don't care, man. I'm gonna I'm taking. I'm doing it myself." <laughs> yeah, he was. Yeah, he, he, go ahead. It's hard to imagine a more stressful job in the world than being Mike Riley during World War II and having to plan this trip. I mean, it, it involves stopping at about eight cities all over the world, doing security, figuring out where he's going to sleep. And of course, uh, Roosevelt was in a wheelchair. So in, in addition to all the normal security you'd have to worry about, Mike Riley had, had to worry about all these special accommodations to keep the president safe. He's not a president couldn't just get up and run away if something happened. So there were all these extra um, extra precautions that had to be taken. And just every day of this month long journey is a day where something could go terribly wrong. And as you're learning about all of it, I just, I felt sorry for Mike Riley and it actually made me stressed out just reading about what he had to do uh, and, and the anxiety he had trying to plan this incredibly complicated uh, you know, multi-layered journey uh, on boat, on plane, on train, on jeep, on every possible form of, of, of uh, transportation you could imagine. So stressful. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Your spring is about to get a lot more power with the Home Depot. Get gas-like power from mowing, trimming, and blowing with the Ryobi 18-volt 1 Plus system starting at just $89. Mowing power that can take on a third of an acre with one charge. Trimming power with up to two hours of runtime. And blowing power with 110 miles per hour of clearing force. All on one interchangeable battery. Get cordless gas-like power for the entire lawn with the Ryobi 18-volt 1 Plus system. Only at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. And now we're back with the authors of The Nazi Conspiracy, Brad Meltzer and Josh Metch, The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill. I'm going to give you listeners just a little hint. Just a little hint. I'm not going to give away the story, but I'm going to give you a little hint, which really adds the drama to this story. But they find out before the meeting in Tehran that the Nazis have a plot to kill all three of the Allied leaders in Tehran. And they've dropped parachute units just a few miles from Tehran. And these guys, these guys are special forces people on the Nazi side. And they're getting ready to hook up with Nazi agents in Tehran. 
And this is where Mike Riley and this is where all of the suspense comes into the story. I'm not going to give up the ending and what happened, but really builds the drama. Yeah, you, I will say you'll see when you see Operation Franz, when you see these, you know, uh, trying to sabotage the Trans-Iranian Railroad, when you see what is being done, when you see, you know, how it's thwarted by, you know, how putting a, a group of men on bicycles can potentially change the course of history. When you see how one member of that Nazi team getting sick can change these things, you, you realize, again, we kept using the word fragile before, but I think over and over what you see here is just how quickly things can turn in a way that no one can possibly predict. And and it, it to me, is it, it's what adds such tension to the story when you're reading it. Because, again, those parts of the story, we all know the Churchill, we all know the FDR, we all know the Stalin parts. Are, they're such big headlines. But the the what I love about the Nazi conspiracy is you see these, uh, I'm going to call them footnotes, but it, it, it does them a disservice, but these, you know, people who are have smaller roles in these giant parts of history, and there's so many of them. Um, you know, down to uh, a lowly dentist uh, who gets busted because, you know, and, and again, I won't ruin it, but you'll see just how these little moments change what people know about this plot and what's going on and and uh, and and whether Russia is telling the truth or trying to just trick us to, you know, listen in and eavesdrop on us. The, the, the stories will go back and forth so many times and you're going to go. My gosh, this is this is a, a very amazing moment in World War II history. Yeah, again, I'm trying to put myself in Mike Riley's shoes when they suddenly say, hey, we're going to have to move this meeting to the Soviet embassy. <laughs> Brad, can you imagine, by the way, you're in charge and, you, and, 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 they, and they say, yeah, come move it here. And you know, as Mike Riley knows in that moment, okay, there's a benefit to going to the British embassy, right? You can go there, but there's an even better benefit going to the Russian one. No one really trusts the Russians as well. But wait a minute, if we go to the Russian one, we can also be alone potentially. And you're balancing all of this trying to say, oh, and don't get the boss killed while you're at it. So you're, I mean, it is, it is the most stressful job yeah, they're all hashing this out around a table. It was great the way that you all wrote it because you get the ideas coming from each one of them. And finally, at the last moment, they say, what do you think, Riley? <laughs> and he, it all falls on his shoulder. <laughs> it was great. Absolutely great. Listen, if I had a Mike Riley, I'd blame everything on him too. Why not? It's so much easier than having to grab responsibility. I mean, go ahead, Mike. You go to nine countries and race around and come back and tell us what you saw. We'll see you in seven weeks. You know, you're like, what? <laughs> Thank you both very much for this book. Our readers are going to be excited to pick it up. It's Brad Meltzer and Josh Mensch, The Nazi Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill. When is this going to be out? Uh, January 10th, we're out, which is when you're hearing this right now. And uh, we can't wait for everyone to read it, obviously. Uh, I think you're in for a real fun ride with The Nazi Conspiracy. Well, thank you both so much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Good luck on your on your future work and hope everything works out great. Uh, up to this point, you guys have become a legend. So it's always a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much, John. You bet.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.